and open to the book of Hebrews. Very good. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. Well, you have a handout. I'm not nearly as impressed. Right? <laughs> Hebrews chapter 8. So we are walking through really the argument climaxed last week, but he's still working out the particulars of that argument as we go through Hebrews. So as we really get through chapter 10, it'll kind of, he's just re-saying the same thing over and over again from different nuances, and he'll say it as boldly as he can say it by the end of chapter 10. Um, And then in chapter 11, you get that famous hall of faith. It's an application of it, and it's a demonstration of perseverance. And then, of course, it wraps up in chapter 12 with Christ. Um, enduring the suffering, some beautiful passages there. So we're we're kind of in the climactic section of the book of Hebrews. So as we continue to walk forward tonight, we do need to remember exactly what's going on with the book. So let's do the typical trivia slash recap. And the book of Hebrews is written to what group of people? Hebrews. What kind of Hebrews? Christian Jews who are being persecuted by non-Christian Jews. So the whole so the whole conversation is a Jewish conversation. The setting to the book is you have Jewish Christians who are being persecuted basically by their family, by their neighbors, by their own people who are not Christians to turn away from Christ and therefore turn back to what? The law. The law, to Moses. So really a lot of times we just say Moses. Even though Moses is not a bad character, he's a positive, glorious character even in the Old Testament. But sometimes in the book of Hebrews, the comparisons are so stark, it almost sounds like Old Testament bad, New Testament good. Not what the author of Hebrews is trying to say, because what he's really done is set the stage where if you take Jesus out of the Old Testament, when did that begin? When did Jesus, Old Testament without Jesus, when did that start? started after Jesus came. Follow what I'm saying? So the whole time the Old Testament was inactive, sorry, in in place, my words are not working tonight. I'm going to start over. So the Old Testament, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, was always plan A, and it was step one leading up to step two. Step two was Christ, sacrifice, his work of atonement. Everything in that Old Testament was progressively setting the stage For what Christ would do. It never existed in any sense apart from the atoning work of Christ. That was always the plan, always the direction. If you take Jesus out of that Old Testament system and you have Moses and the law without Christ, that doesn't exist until after Jesus comes. Because every every moment before that was just the pre-Christian version of Christianity. And then Judaism without Christ came later. So that comparison between Christianity and the Old Testament is really, in a sense, a comparison between Christianity and non-believing Judaism after Jesus. Does that make sense, what we're saying? So that's that's the argument, that's the setting he's in. So he's going to compare Christianity versus, versus a non-Christ-directed Old Testament. So step one of the argument was that Jesus is better than what? He's better than angels. He was made a little while lower than the angels. In what sense was Jesus lower than the angels? In the incarnation. Incarnation became a man, but 
Then he, after his death and subsequent resurrection, where is he now? Seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is now greater than the angels. Now, he was technically always greater than the angels, but in the flesh, he is little lower and now greater than the angels. But after that, we move on from the angels. The argument of Hebrews says Jesus is greater than who? Moses or the law, take either one, right answer. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the law of Moses as much as the builder of the house has more glory than the house. Do you remember that illustration in chapter 2 and 3? We're getting to that. And he's saying Moses was faithful over God's house. But as a servant, Jesus is faithful over God's house as the what? The son, the heir. Either word, it's worked. He's faithful over that house as the heir. Then we progress further. And it's not just the law of Moses that Jesus is greater than. There's a particular category of law in the Old Testament that Jesus is greater than. And we can find a lot of it in the book of Leviticus. And what category of the law are we talking about? Priesthood. The Levitical priesthood. Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood. So we have to deal with an issue is Jesus is our high priest in the new covenant. But Jesus does not qualify to be a Levitical high priest. And why is that? He's not a Levite. Furthermore, he's not an Aaronite, a descendant of Aaron within Levi. Instead, he's Judite. He's descended from David. He's not qualified to be a high priest. And the author of Hebrews says, that's okay, because Jesus is a priest According to a different order. And what was that order? Melchizedek. That fun conversation about this guy in the Old Testament that Abraham paid tithes to. And we kind of got into that pretty well in chapter 7. But then ultimately Jesus is over a greater priesthood because two things. He can offer his priestly activities sinlessly. And then how long can he do his priestly activity? Forever. Why? Because he lives forever. He cannot die. And then we got the chapter 8 last week, which reviewed that Jesus is the high priest of a better covenant. And we emphasize, I just realized, did we fill in all our blanks last week? I no, totally no, forgot about that. The last three. No. Oh, guys, I forgot. The better promises. The better promises. I totally forgot we didn't finish. So I didn't, oh, man, I'm kind of embarrassed right now. Okay, anyway, let's just pretend that didn't happen and we'll keep going. So we almost finished the first six verses of chapter 8 last week. And we looked at the better promises, or sorry, the better covenant versus the better promises. So the covenants compared, if we look at Moses versus Jesus, do you remember any of the differences between those two covenants? Or the key difference between those two covenants? The covenant with Moses was performed in a building. What building? Ultimately the temple, but in Moses' time, it's the tabernacle. All right, so there's our tabernacle. They were performed in here. And the emphasis of chapter 8 is, is this the real tabernacle? No, it's not. It's, it's a, it is a real tabernacle. But Moses was told, build the tabernacle like this other tabernacle. What was the other tabernacle? What was the other tent? This is God's throne room. 
And so we're looking, this is a type, or we call it a shadow, of the covenant that was to come. And that tabernacle is where Moses had his system done, but Jesus enters into the true tabernacle, the one not made by hands, and he does the sacrificial work in a separate and a true in the heavenly tabernacle. And then furthermore, we got the verse 6. Now let's just start in verse 6 since we didn't finish last week. It says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second Better promises. Now, you may remember in our chart last week, we looked at all these different covenants from the Old Testament. Covenants always have um, two parties, and they always have conditions, or we could call them stipulations, or we could just call them promises. There's always some content to the covenant relationship. So a good example of this would be the covenant God made with Noah. And what did we call the covenant God made with Noah? Noahic covenant. And the covenant had two parties, God and Noah. But Noah's the representative of who? All mankind. And in that covenant, there's a condition, or we could call it a promise, stipulations. And what are the stipulations? Can you give me two of them in that covenant? That God would never flood the earth again. And then the, the one that nobody ever remembers. Do you remember what the other one is? This is, do what? Oh, this was on the man's side. The other one was on the man's side. You can eat meat. So you can eat meat. That you can eat meat. Yes, that was the other one. You can, you can eat meat now. Now, we don't know if they actually ate meat before or not, but they're told they can after that. But so you see there's, there's promises or stipulations or conditions in all of these covenants. But what we're saying here, and this is really just sort of finishing up what last week was about, the new covenant has better promises, better conditions, better stipulations than the old covenant did. Well, can you think of what that might be? What might be the better promise, the better condition the new covenant has? Okay. Not only are we going to make it out of Egypt and into the wilderness... We're going to make it into the promised land. That's essentially what this is saying. Now, we could be more precise than that, but that's the illustration. Moses led God's people into the wilderness, did get them out of slavery, but how many people did Moses take into the promised land? Zero. He didn't take a soul into the promised land because he didn't even get to go. He got to see it, but he didn't get to go. Consequently, or in contrast to that, rather, Jesus is going to do what? He's going to take his people not only out of slavery, but all the way into the promised land. Now, now we're going to get into the rest of chapter 8 and the first part of chapter 9. So let's dive in that verse 7 again and following. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless... All right, listen to that sentence. If the first covenant had been faultless... What did that just imply? 
it lacked something. That the first covenant lacked something. Now, we have to be really careful how we think about that. Where did the first covenant come from? It's God's covenant. So did God get something wrong? Is that what the author of Hebrews is trying to say? No, not at all. And then my translation says, So for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says. Now, sometimes, Does anybody's translation say he finds fault with it? So everybody in the room, their translation says, he finds fault with them. So who's the them? Well, not, not Adam and Eve in this case. I mean, we could include Adam and Eve, but not technically. It's the Hebrews. He finds fault with the people in that covenant. So he, the fault, hear this, the fault with the Mosaic covenant is what? The people in it. That's what's wrong with the covenant. It's like if I do marriage counseling, you know what's wrong with that marriage? The people. The people. people. That's what's wrong with that marriage, okay? I'm not trying to depress you. This is called depravity. This is what we are. But that's part of the problem with the old covenant. It's not God's side of the covenant. It's man's side of the covenant. That part of the covenant's broken. The people are broken. So he finds fault with them when he says. Now, if your translation... um, illustrates in some graphic way a quotation. Mine goes into this poetic paragraph form, so it's it's quotationed off, and we've got four, let's see, in my translation, one, two, three, four, five verses worth of quotations. Everybody have some sort of visual demarcation of that. Now, unlike the last big quotation we had, where he started quoting scripture and then rambled off into another scripture and then just started kind of rambling things that were in the Old Testament somewhere. Um, this one is actually a word-for-word direct quotation, so direct, either he literally memorized this passage word-for-word or had a copy of it when he was walking through it. Now, we're fixing to get super nerdy, and just in case you care, because some of us do, I do, so maybe you will. I don't know if you will or not. But if you know... The Old Testament is written in what language? Aramaic. Hebrew. <laughs> Hebrew. There is a there's like a verse in Aramaic in the book of Daniel. But uh, basically, it's it's Hebrew, 99.9%. The point one is Aramaic, so technically you get 0.1% credit. Um, there's also Aramaic the, in the New Testament. The New Testament, okay, technically, but it's also that's like right. 0.1%. That's right. Like, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yay. All right. The New Testament, other than the two super short fragmentary pieces that are in Aramaic, Old Testament's in Hebrew, New Testament's in Greek. Greek. The book of Hebrews is in Greek. <laughs> it's in Greek, yes. All right. That's a trick question. Why do you want to say Hebrew? Because it's good for what it's called, Hebrews. Just another thing that's really funny all the names of the Old Testament books are the Greek names of the Hebrew books. It's just always been weird to me. You know why? Because predominantly we have the Greek version of the Old Testament. So have you ever read two different translations side by side? You'll find that often the differences really aren't that significant, but they are different. You can, someone quotes from the Bible, I can tell you if they grew up learning the King James um, because of what? There'll be some these and thighs and thous. I'll know some of the ifs 
that come up, I'll know what translation they're using based on the exact wording that's going on. It's a super fascinating point here. The book of Hebrews has a verbatim quote of a, lar- of a whole paragraph from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. You think it used the Hebrew version or the Greek? Use the Greek version. I just find that fascinating. Now, it's comforting. It means translations of Scripture count as true Scripture. Um, but they use the, because there's actually a textual variant partway through this, and this quotes the textual variant of the Greek, not what we would call the original Hebrew. It doesn't change the meaning at all. It's just a different way to say something. Saying the same point, just with a different lingo, a more Greek expression. And he's using that. Um, that was just a side note for your benefit. So verses 8 through 12 are a direct quotation from the prophet Jeremiah in the LXX. That is the shorthand for the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's a Greek version of the Old Testament. But let's read this quote. You probably are familiar with this one. I've heard it because it's a, it's a big deal, quote, in the Old Testament. It says, for he finds fault with them when he says, and now quoting Jeremiah 31, I'm picking up in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, quick Old Testament side note, what's the difference between the house of Israel and the house of Judah? The northern versus the southern kingdoms. All right, the house of Israel is which? That's the northern kingdom, and the house of Judah is the southern kingdom. So clearly this is an Old Testament quotation that was written in that time of their history. They're still referring to it that way. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand, or by the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What covenant are we talking about? It's not going to be like the Mosaic covenant. Because that's the covenant God made with them. He brought them out of Egypt to Sinai and made the covenant. He's saying it's not going to be like that covenant. Well, in what way is it not going to be like that covenant? For they did not continue in my covenant. So what's the key difference going to be? It's not going to be above them. So the old covenant, it's not going to be like the covenant that they couldn't keep. It's going to be, in what way is it going to be different? Oh, I love your phrasing there, Adam. It's going to be a covenant that God keeps. Oh, that's great. That's even better than I was thinking. So let's just pretend I didn't have another point there, and let's keep going. (laughs) For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Actually, those two lines are the ones that are slightly different. If you go read this quotation in your Old Testament, your Old Testament Basically, everybody's book in the in, in this room is going to have the Hebrew version. And the end of verse 9 is where it's a little different if you just want to go check that later and see the difference. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying... Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Let's fill in a few blanks. So the primary marks of this new covenant 
Number one, it won't be like the one Israel broke. It won't be like that. It'll have a different flavor to it. It will be written in the mind and in the heart as opposed to where. Where was the other one written? Tablets. Tablets. On tablets of stone. Yes. So, in other words, it will be in them, not objective to them. Third, it will define them as God's people. Do you see that in there? What did it say they will be? I will be their God. They will be my people. That's what the old covenant was supposed to do. But this one's going to do it better. All its members will know the Lord. That is from the least of them to the greatest of them. All of them will know the Lord. That's the idea of not needing to teach one another. Everyone who's in this covenant will know the Lord. And then last, sin will be removed. So literally it says, I'll remember their sins no more. I'll be merciful towards their iniquities. Now that's the heart of the gospel, right? We understand the concept of propitiation. We love that word. I love that word anyway. Um, and propitiation in the New Testament means what? What? Satisfaction in what sense? All of this is part of the definition. So we're, we got all the right words. I just want to put them in different order. All right, so our sin incurs God's wrath. Propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies the just requirement of that wrath. That work. So we deserve punishment. The work of Christ buys, purchases, atones for, removes our guilt and sin um, through his blood. That's what propitiation means. So then verse 13 says, In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So what's vanishing away here? The old, the old covenant. So now remember we said there's things in the old covenant that were designed just to show us Christ. Can they still show us Christ? Sure. Can we read the clean and unclean laws and still learn something about Christ? Is the Old Testament still God's word? So in Romans, when Paul yes. says all yes, those Andy. things were, yes. were, were <laughs> all those things were written to give you hope. Those things technically refer to what part of your Bible? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. When Paul says all Scripture is God breathed and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, adequate for every good work. Technically, the all Scripture there refers to what part of your Bible? The Old Testament. The Old Testament, technically. Right? That Old Testament, not in any sense, vanishes away. But this sense of how it works towards salvation is not the same now that Christ has come. Paul uses a similar analogy in Galatians. It says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who under the law. It comes from Galatians 4.4. 4. In that chapter, he's trying to explain that for a while we were under a tutor, but now we've grown up and we've inherited the real thing. We don't need the tutor anymore. The tutor can still teach us. It still instructs us. But it was all designed to point to Christ. Now imagine going back to that system without Jesus being in it anymore. That's just dumb. 
Like, that makes no sense whatsoever. That version of the Old Testament technically never existed, and that system being under it directly has vanished because we're under Christ now. We have no need to be under it in that way. So that's what he's getting at here. The Old Covenant has become obsolete. So, to fill in the next blank, the New Covenant was established by Christ, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, coming from chapter 7, when he offered himself once for all in the true tabernacle. We'll get a lot more wording on that in the coming chapter, the rest of chapter 9. All right, so that's the promised new covenant. Now, he does this interesting thing. He gives us really beautiful picture of these ways the new covenant is new. And then the next paragraph, he jumps back and details the old covenant. And actually, if you really think about it, it's going to make the old covenant seem kind of lame compared to what he just described. And really, that's that's intentional. He's, he's trying to do that. And so let's dive into chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Earthly place of holiness is what? Tabernacle. And by earthly place of holiness, what do we mean about this place? What's the idea of, why is this place holy to begin with? Where God dwells. God's presence. All right, so when God shows up in the burning bush to Moses, Moses walks up, what's the bush say? Holy ground. It's holy ground, take your shoes off, right? Right? God's presence made something holy. It's special, it's set apart. God had a holy place there. So even in the Old Testament, there's a presence of God. It's almost like he, he's like, he's having a bad, it was obsolete, it's obsolete, yeah, but, but even in that system, God did have a presence here. There's a, a, a way, God manifested his presence, there was a way we could have regulations for worship. You could go to God in a certain sense in the Old Covenant. So let's detail what that certain sense is. Verse 2, for a tent, or tabernacle, was prepared the first section in which there were lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. So if we're just looking at it from the side, we've got a first section and a second section. And here we got a lampstand. I won't get all particular. There's a table. First section. So you come in this way. Got to go through the first to get into the second. I mean, technically it's a tent. I mean, you could try that, but the point is, what would happen? You'd just be dead. All right, so don't go that way. You want to go the right way. Otherwise, it's not going to end well for you. So here's the first section. There were things you could do. Now, I say things you could do. You aren't actually going in there, right? Who's going in there? Priests are. Priests are going in there. We have a good example of this in the New Testament. A guy goes in there and is offering incense on the altar, and an angel speaks to him, says, uh, you're going to have a child. Who's this? Uh, John's dad. <laughs> John's dad. <laughs> Elizabeth and Zechariah. Very good. Um, his name means the Lord remembers. So even if we don't, the Lord does. All right. So that's that first section. It says it is called the holy place. First section is holy 
place. Now let's keep going. Okay, verse 3. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place. So that right there is the curtain. So holy place and then most holy place. So two levels of holiness in the temple. And of course, you know what's in here. What's in here? The box. The box. It's going to be my really poor rendering of the box. Ark of the Covenant. All right. And we get some neat information here about the Ark of the Covenant. So in this most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna. What's the manna? So that's the food they got in the water. I've got a golden urn with some, some manna. I'm assuming this is special manna because the manna wouldn't keep overnight unless it was Friday. It would keep overnight on Friday, but not any other day. Or if it's in the Ark of the Covenant, I imagine it kept until Babylon melted it down. Um, or they may have remade it, but I doubt the manna would have still been there because the manna was gone. But anyway, so we've got this. Then we have Aaron's staff that budded. You remember that story? Oh, yeah. There was a, a coup, so to speak. And basically, Aaron's staff, which is a dead stick, um, not only produced a, a, a sprig of new life, but what was the, the thing? Was it, a, was it a nut or something? Wasn't it a, a, Lost. Almond. Is it almond? almond? I wanted to say almond, but that sounded wrong. I think it, I yeah, think I think it was an almond, almond though. There you go. Yeah, it actually flowered, produced a bud, and then had an almond on it, which proved Aaron was the true high priest. And then, probably most importantly, had two stone tablets. And of course, what is on the two stone tablets? The Ten Commandments. Sometimes called the Decalogue which just means the ten statements, the ten words, the ten commandments. So that's what was in there. And those are super holy items. And they go into the most holy place. Let's keep going. Where are we at? Verse um, 5. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So here's my poor... Rendering of two cherubim, flaming ones, angels, over. And there wasn't actually a throne here, but the idea was there was a throne there. It's the mercy seat. And what would be sitting there between the seraphim? God. God. So we have a picture of this in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6. And we see Isaiah has a vision of this. And it's not some tiny little vision of this. It's like up in heaven, and it still comes down and fills the temple. But God is between... These two seraphim, these flaming ones, and what are the angels crying out? Holy, 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 holy holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. It says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. That is one of the most debated verses in all of the book of Hebrews when it comes to when was the book written. So why do you think this, and I can see it either direction because there's other things going on here too. We cannot speak of these things in detail anymore. Why not? 
after 70 AD. So if the book was written after 70 AD, that means because the temple's gone and we can't see it anymore. Or it's because the Ark of the Covenant was never in the temple again after Babylon destroyed it. And then the book could be pre-80-70. Doesn't matter to what we're doing right now, but just if you like the nerdy stuff, there you go. All right. Of these, oh wait, we already read that. Of things we cannot speak now in detail. We've got a few more verses to go. Verse 6. These preparations, having thus been made, in other words, we got all this set up, so these preparations are ready. The priests go regularly into the first section performing ritual duties. So how often do they go to section number one? Every day. All the time. This is a regular, they got to keep the incense going, the prayers are offered continually. They're coming in and out of this place all the time. Not you, but the priests who represent you as a people get to go in there all the time. So it is amazing that Zechariah in the New Testament, when it's his turn to go in, this may have literally been the only time in his entire life that his time came. Like So priests went in there all the time. That doesn't necessarily mean any particular priest got to do it all the time. So this is a big deal to get to go at all. You can imagine how big a deal that would be to know that literally there was the curtain between you and God's physical manifestation of his presence on the earth. I can only imagine how insane that would have been. But into the second one, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins, I hate that word, of the people. Unintentional sins of the people. Anybody else get uncomfortable reading that expression? <laughs> it doesn't sound accurate. <laughs> it's like, God will forgive you of only your unintentional sins. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> okay, because that's the Old Testament, though, Gus. We see that expression a lot. So he goes in here how often? Once a year. Once a year, but every year. Yom Kippur, that's exactly right. He goes in every year, once a year, and only one guy gets to do this. Who is that? The only the high priest. He's the descendant of Aaron. He is the one who is in charge. He gets to go in once a year, and he has to go in once a year. And he can't go in there unless he's got what with him? Blood. And he sprinkles that blood on the Ark of the Covenant for the sins, the unintentional sins, of the people. Now, there's another note about this guy when he would go in there. What would they do? Tie a rope around him. Why? What if he goes all Uzo on everybody and touches the ark and kills over? You know, there's a lot of things that could go wrong in there. Maybe he thinks he wasn't confessing. Maybe there's intentional sins in his life. In fact, if you remember when Eli was in charge, God killed both of his sons because they were wicked in his eyes for things going on. So. Very scary to go into the second spot. So let's fill in a few blanks here. So the Old Covenant emphasized the physical components of the tabernacle. Think about that. Physical. How much of the book of Exodus is this is so many cubits long? And so many cubits. Have you, you know, I tell people all the time when they're the first time they're reading the Bible, I tell them to start at Genesis and read Exodus until it gets boring. <laughs> and then pick up with Joshua. Uh, you, you need to read the other parts. 
when you're ready. But you always know the part I'm talking about in Exodus. Because right after Jesus, right after they get the Ten Commandments, they start detailing how to build the tabernacle. And then they tell you how they built the tabernacle. You remember that? It's like, here's how. And then when they do it, here's how they did it. It's like, to make sure you can compare the two, that they did it the same. But you think about it, the whole book of Leviticus emphasizes earthly cleanliness. It's what you can touch. It's what you can't touch. If you do touch that and you weren't supposed to touch that, here's how you can get clean. Again, it's all seemingly physical components. Or we might, to use the lingo from chapter earlier part of chapter 8, say earthly components rather than heavenly components. So really, all these components in the Old Testament were symbolic, some ultimate meaning Christ would give them. But he's emphasizing that. And now let's see. So the primary marks of the Old Covenant are one, ritual duties are performed by the priest in the first section. And number two, the high priest offers blood once a year, every year, in the holy place. And in other words, access to the presence of God is closed. Let's keep reading. You'll see him basically say that here. Verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates... So by this meaning that first section, second section, how the old system worked, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Now he means the the age his opponents are in, technically, because he's entered the new age. So as long as you've got this section, you don't have access to this section. So who's he talking to? Remember, what's his argument? What are they being tempted to do? Instead of Jesus, you want to go back to that? You want to have to go through this in hopes that once a year your unintentional sins can be forgiven? Or would you rather that new covenant where God did what to your sin? He remembers it no more. Well, that's a pretty crazy comparison if you think about it. According to this arrangement, this arrangement, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Again, physical things, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Imposed until infers what? Implies what? That it's ending. That it will end. That it will only do this until it reaches the point where it doesn't have to do this anymore. So here's his argument. If this exists, holiness is unattainable. How does his argument work? That's basically what he's saying. As long as there's a first section before the second section, you cannot be holy before God. Your conscience cannot be perfected. Why is it the case? Work out the logic. Because it has to be done over and over again? What well, laws have to be done over and over again? Because we're still bad. There's no once for all time. If this worked, if this works, let's say if the Old Testament, to use, Jim said the word propitiation, if the Old Testament caused true propitiation to happen, what happens right here? 
We don't need it anymore. So the fact that the first section stays open is by default proof that this isn't working. Well, interesting. Where's, what happened when Jesus was crucified? To that torn in half. From top to the bottom. To bottom, torn open. Well, the New Testament is very consistent with this lingo. So what's new in this sense about the New Covenant compared to the old one? You got access. Direct access. Which isn't that exactly what he said in the Jeremiah quotation? Who will know me? Everyone. From the least to the greatest, all of them will know the Lord. You won't have to say, know the Lord. They'll all know me. They will all be my people. So the old covenant did not perfect the worshipers and allow them access to God, because if it had, there would have been no need for sectioning off the holy place. Think about that. If what Aaron or any high priest offered right here made you holy, what would you be able to do then? You'd be able to walk in. Not even the high priest offering it was safe in there. He had to keep a rope tied around him in case he did it wrong. So the entire system presupposes that the sufficient that the system is insufficient. I said that there's too many S's in that word. So the entire system presupposes that the system is insufficient and therefore pointing towards something greater. It never had any purpose other than to prepare us for the high priesthood of Christ. It's setting us up and leading us forward. That's what he does. So let's see. Now we, we finish not, 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 yeah. not that though there's a, I can't name a Bible verse. I just remember being, hearing it taught that you could think of it as, as the, the debt was never paid for. This was the interest. So Paying it, interest, it was, it was, sure. It was the covering. It, it allowed you to go another year. Maintain you know, yeah. so, yeah, so, yeah. You put the sins of the people on the, on the goat, run him out of town, kill the good one. And you're good for a year. <laughs> for your unintentional sins. Right, right, right. Man. <laughs> Let's not talk about those intentional ones. Because that would not go well. Okay. Oh, look, it's too long. There were some, in, yeah, there was, it's complicated now. That's, it's too after, so I'm going to call it there. All right, any other questions on this? No. Oh. So since I don't have the other sheet with me, I'm just going to try to guess. Can I see that and see if I can remember offhand what my blanks were? Rob, hand me that. So let's see. This is going to be embarrassing. <laughs> All right. Jesus has promised to provide eternal redemption. If you still have last week's paper. Now, which word I used, I don't care what it was, but I'm going to use this word for the next blank. And I'm sure it was a synonym of this word that I used. Jesus fully solves the problem of sin. Solves? Yes. I used something like that. It was a synonym of that word. You're the pastor. They have to believe what you tell them. Right. So I'm going to have to... You know what? I can check this on my phone. 
But that'll take like 20 minutes. Okay, so Jesus will finally undo the consequences of sin in the end. I think I said end. In the end. Yeah. There you go. We're setting up for the resurrection. That's where we're headed. He's going to give a whole glorious chapter on the faith in the resurrection in chapter 11. It's going to be great. All right. Well, any other questions that I might have more confident answers to? <laughs> is, it's like the old covenant he covenanted with them. The new covenant he's covenanting with himself. Yes. All right. So here's the question, Robert. The old covenant was technically between God and Moses as the representative of the people of Israel. The new covenant is between God and Jesus, the representative of his people. So, what's the key difference there? Man's not around to screw it up. <laughs> One of them is perfect. One of them is not. You would much rather be under the covenant that the perfect son of God is the head of. He's the head of our covenant. As laying all over the New Testament. All right. Get the second to last. Second oh, on the, tonight's blank. The old we covenant got did not blank. Per- perfect. Thank you. When you were talking about uh, these things, we cannot not speak in detail. I just assumed whenever I read that he's talking about, we, I can't go over all the things in detail here. Yeah, how many could mean that? That's MacArthur's he could mean. Is that MacArthur's note? MacArthur's note, pretty much. Yeah. We ain't got time to cover this kind of detail. Yeah. Because like, uh, right, he makes a similar argument, like, at the beginning of chapter 6, and into 5 and 6. Like, we got a lot of stuff we want to talk about, but we can't. Because you're too, you know infantile in your understanding of this gospel. Yeah, so, all right, well, let me close this in prayer. And basically, we still want the right amount of time because we started 10 minutes late, right? So there we go. <laughs> Let's pray. God, we thank you for tonight. We pray that you bless the study of your word. Uh, we thank you that the new covenant is so good that you show mercy towards our sin and you remember our sins no more because of the atoning sacrifice Christ. God, we thank you for that grace and that gospel. Pray that we'd live in it faithfully with boldness, with confident obedience and faithfulness to your calling. And we pray that you would bless us as a church to let your light shine through us so that this world could see the light of the gospel. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much.